welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And then I also have a blog, and I've been writing in that for about three years, although I haven't really posted anything since uh, I started the podcast in March of this year. You can find that at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is December 21st, 2021. And boy, things just keep happening here, you know, in the holiday season. Friday dumps and then holiday season surprises, where I don't think the news cycle is going to be very self-sustaining. But Yesterday, December 20th, a very interesting thing happened. The Independent Accountability Resolution Process and its hearing panel issued the decision in the NC State case. And remember, the NC State case was really the first case to run through the IARP process, which in theory is completely independent of the old NCAA Committee on Infractions process. And I did gosh, I don't know, maybe 10 episodes on the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process, because that's one of the central functions that has served really since the 1950s, when it acquired meaningful enforcement jurisdiction and authority. And I've I've talked all about that in connection with the pay-for-play series and also in that NC State series and how Walter Byers, the NCAA's first full-time CEO who was in that position for 37 years, he built this business. He created this police state-like infractions and enforcement process that really hasn't changed that much through the years. And one of the criticisms of the current NCAA national office structure is that uh, Walter Byers' DNA is still in the existing in-house NCAA infractions and enforcement staff that are full-time employees of the national office, and they are well-paid. And some of the executives that oversee infractions and enforcement are among the highest-paid employees in the NCAA national office, according to the NCAA's Form 990 tax returns. So it's a very powerful component of the bureaucratic state, the NCAA bureaucratic state. And as I've discussed in recent episodes, that is really in play right now with this new constitution and the devolution down from the national office to the divisions of infractions and enforcement. And at the division one level, that means to the power five. So this entire system is in flux right now. And that's one of the reasons that this NC State case is so interesting, particularly the timing of it. When I was talking about that Auburn case a couple of episodes ago, I raised the question of why Would any enforcement authority that has jurisdiction over these issues issue any opinions now, knowing that there could be a complete makeover in every aspect of the infractions and enforcement process, and that process will be complete by August of 2022, according to the timeline set forth by the Division I Board of Directors. And why go to the trouble and the potential risk of overreaching and issuing punishments that don't fit the crime as the NCAA has perfected to an art form, you know, punishing innocent athletes. And I, I just wonder what's going on here behind the scenes. I actually have some thoughts and I think they're pretty well informed thoughts, but it's going to require us to do a little timeline here. So what I want to do in this episode is 
give a little bit of background about this NC State case for context, tell you what the bottom line ruling was here. And then I want to talk about the various interests that are orbiting around this new constitution and the fundamental makeover of the infractions and enforcement process. And you really have three important players there. And the first player is obviously the NCAA national office and the current infractions and enforcement staff and all the high-paid executives that oversee it. They have a built-in stake in all of the changes that may occur. And then the second player is the IARP. And although they are pitched as independent, when you look at the oversight boards and how the NCAA set this up, and all this was done as part of the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball that was formed in 2017 in direct response to these basketball-related scandals. And this NC State case came out of that group of prosecutions in the Southern District of New York, as I've discussed in detail. But the Commission on College Basketball looked at the infractions and enforcement part of the NCAA business model and just said, this is a mess. There are built-in conflicts of interest. We need a truly independent process for high-stakes cases, just like these basketball-related cases. And I I spoke at length about how the NCAA was not true to what the commission recommended in the way that they put those recommendations into NCAA legislation. I'm not going to go through all that again. It's available again in episodes 53 to 63. And particularly in, let's see, let me pull this out here. So many papers and so little time. My desk here is just covered up with papers, but Let's see. On September 3rd, I did an episode, episode 55, NCAA versus NC State, a due process train wreck. And I think that was the episode where I talked about this IARP structure and how incestuous it was really with the NCAA and, of course, the NCAA's funding that entire process. So this suggestion of independence is a a bit of an illusion. Then another specific episode you might want to pay attention to, because this goes to some of the key objections that NC State had to the way that the NCAA was handling this case from a due process standpoint. And that was episode 58, NCAA versus NC State, importation fever, the NCAA's evidentiary house of cards. And that was on September 9th of 2021. So you have the IARP here and, you know, they are paid contractors for the NCAA. And they're professionals. And the woman, for example, who was the chief hearing officer on this panel that decided the NC State case, she's a full-time arbitrator. She's been doing it for 30 years and has a great resume. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the opinion here in a minute. And then the third group of players here are the Power Five, because they are now in control, I believe, as a practical matter of what's going to happen with infractions and enforcement. And all three of those pieces of the puzzle are, I think, positioning themselves. But there's no question in my mind that the Power Five are in the driver's seat as a result of this new constitution. So now, both the NCAA Infractions and Enforcement Office and the IARP may be actually in competition for business. We have no details about what this new infractions and enforcement process is going to look like. And under the new constitution, the Power Five have the authority to just write from a blank slate. They have no obligations under this constitution to use any of the old process. They can do whatever they want to. And the easy thing to do would be to try to bring in some of the features of one or both 
existing processes and then just have it really in a format where the Power 5 can keep it between the lines and we don't have to worry about this asymmetrical, random, arbitrary, and capricious decision-making, which is the hallmark of the old NCAA system. But I, I, when I go through this opinion and I do the timeline of how things have changed dramatically since this case was heard in August of 2021 and who the important power players are now in the important decision-making seats, you begin to see, I think, that this is just a, a whole new world on the infractions and enforcement issues. And everybody who currently has a seat at the table is fighting to keep that seat. So I'm going to do a quick recap of the NC State case. I'm going to talk about the bottom line decision by the IARP panel. Then I'm going to do a timeline really from July 30th of 2021 to the present and talk about all the changes that have occurred to create this entirely new environment relative to infractions and enforcement. Then I'm going to talk about these power players and what I think is really going on behind the scenes and how this may play out going forward. And so my thumbnail sketch of the facts here, and I'll say this too, when you read this opinion, it's like including the appendices, it's like 68 pages. It's a long opinion. And remember, this is the very first opinion from this new independent accountability resolution process. The Commission on College Basketball released its findings in April of 2018. Then in August of 2018, the NCAA incorporated some of those principles or bastardized those principles, in my judgment, to give them some extraordinary powers that I believe are due process train wrecks, like this importation clause, which allows them to take information and evidence and positions from other tribunals and then use them in the infractions and enforcement process. But you didn't really have the ability to take a case into this new process because the infrastructure for that process wasn't in place until a year later in August of 2019. And you have four basic components. You have the Independent Accountability Resolution Oversight Committee, which is really an NCAA committee. Then you have the IARP Referral Committee to, to get a case into the process. Then you have this complex case unit, which has two components. And this was designed really to be a complete substitute for the existing infractions and enforcement staff, the NCAA National Office employees, who do all the investigations or used to. And the concern was that in these high stakes cases, the conflicts of interest that were built into that system weren't suited to the, the potential consequences in a high stakes case. So this complex case unit was supposed to, to be the investigators. That didn't happen in this NC State case. All that work went through the old system. And then at the very last minute, Carol Cartwright dumped it on the IARP. And I talked all about that in those NC State episodes. And the other component of that complex case unit is a team of advocates. That's what they call them. And in this NC State case, it appears that the IARP used the complex case unit advocates, which essentially act as prosecutors. They're the prosecutors of the case. They take the information and they you know, present it to the panel and they do the role that a prosecutor would serve in a traditional prosecution. And then, of course, you have the hearing panel. And there are 15 members of that panel and you have lawyers, you have people with mediation and arbitration experience, like the chief hearing panelist here. You have some people with some sports background. And so, you know, there's a bit of a mix, but I think it's heavier on the legal side than the old system, which is a good thing, I think, a good thing. And those are the, the basic components. And those weren't in place again until August of 2019. So you had this NC State case really running through the old process before the infrastructure for the IARP was 
in place. And when you read this opinion, it's very, very difficult to understand what's going on factually because they don't identify people by name. They identify them by anonymous characterizations. And it's uh, apparel company agent number one and apparel company consultant number one and assistant coach number one. And it's really confusing. So I'm going to use the names, the real names here, (laughs) because I'm going to come back to that when I talk a little bit more about how they actually analyzed the most important aspect of this. And that was an alleged $40,000 payment that I'm going to talk about in just a second. So here is the allegation. So North Carolina State is an Adidas-sponsored basketball university. All these universities have these, the big-time universities have massive contracts with one of the big shoe companies. These all ran through Adidas. They just happened to run through Adidas. It could, this could very easily have been Nike or Under Armour or pick your uh, shoe and apparel company. The, the setup is the same. They have these contracts that are worth, NC State's contract is worth almost $50 million. UCLA has a deal with Under Armour worth $180 million, I think. I mean, it's just, these are big, big numbers. And again, I talked about those relationships in in my early episodes in that series on NC State. But these shoe companies have operatives in the grassroots basketball system, the youth basketball system, where talent is identified. And then the shoe companies jockey to try to get a kid affiliated with a grassroots team, like an AAU team that is sponsored by that shoe company. And then they try to run that athlete up through the shoe company pipeline from the grassroots to college and then ultimately perhaps to a sponsorship deal once the, the kid turns pro. And again, the high value athletes here, the high value basketball players get an enormous amount of attention. It's really, it's difficult to put into words the, the interest that these athletes attract because of their unique value to the institution and to the product and to the brand of the university. So you have this intense competition and that was the case in the recruitment of a basketball player named Dennis Smith Jr. And Smith is from North Carolina. He's from Fayetteville. And he was one of the best point guard prospects in the country. And everybody wanted him. But it appeared to most recruiting observers that NC State had the inside track, in part, not just because Smith was from North Carolina and close to NC State, but Smith's grandmother was a huge State fan, and so I think there was this belief that Smith was really leaning towards NC State. And the NC State assistant coach who was actively recruiting Smith uh, is named Orlando Early. The head coach at the time was Mark Gottfried. But as is the case in a, a lot of these recruitment scenarios, the athletes have people around them who are heavily involved in the recruiting process. And... Dennis Smith Jr.'s father was involved. And then there was a gentleman who acted essentially as a gatekeeper to Dennis Smith and Dennis Smith's family. And his name is Sean Farmer. He was a personal trainer for Dennis Smith Jr. That's how he portrayed himself. So Early was having to essentially go through Farmer and then to the Smith family. 
And another common dynamic in these recruiting scenarios is that a representative of a shoe company gets involved with these talented athletes. And that's really their job to navigate this grassroots system, identify talent, insinuate themselves into relationships surrounding that talent. And on the Adidas side, the guy who served that role was this really sketchy actor named T.J. Gasnola. Gasnola is not an Adidas employee, but he is acting as a quote-unquote Adidas consultant. That's the way that the hearing panel characterized him and his participation in this whole scenario. But uh, Gasnola has a relationship with an actual Adidas employee, and his name is Jim Gatto. And eventually, Dennis Smith Jr. uh, voices his intentions to attend NC State But at some point before Smith Jr. actually signs with NC State and makes a formal commitment through signing a national letter of intent that has some binding effect, the NC State assistant coach, Orlando Early, becomes uncomfortable because he is led to believe, uh, and I think this may have come from Farmer, the Smith family's handler, that Smith may be wavering on his commitment to NC State. And so Early is then in touch with this Gasnola guy, the Adidas consultant. And Gasnola comes up with this plan to try to get some money to the Smith family to cement in Smith Jr.'s commitment to NC State. But this TJ Gasnola guy is a shadowy actor. I mean, he's bad news. And even people operating in the underworld of this talent acquisition market in big-time college basketball, they're wary of Gasnola. And and there are T.J. Gasnolas throughout the grassroots basketball system working for various shoe companies. So so if you're going to be in that recruiting environment, one way or another, you're going to have to deal with the T.J. Gasnolas of the world. So when Gasnola becomes aware that Smith Jr. may be wavering, he suggests a payment to the Smith family to run through their handler, Sean Farmer. And that's going to be a $40,000 payment. Gasnola comes up with the $40,000 and the evidence at the criminal case uh, was that he delivered that money to Orlando early. He flew down to Raleigh delivered the money to Early. And then Jim Gatto, this uh, true Adidas employee, he was going to reimburse Gasnola. So he was in the deal at that point. And actually his involvement was less direct than T.J. Gasnola's, but he was prosecuted under the wire fraud statutes. So Dennis Smith then ultimately follows through on his commitment to NC State and the narrative that is spun by the prosecution in the Southern District of New York and then in the NCAA infractions and enforcement case is that that money ultimately made it into the hands of the Smith family. And it's important to note at this point that NC State doesn't dispute the fact that T.J. Gasnola brought $40,000 from Boston. I think Gasnola was in Boston. He flies down and he gives $40,000 to Orlando Early. NC State essentially concedes that in the NCAA's investigation and infractions and enforcement case. But NC State says beyond that, the paper trail falls silent and Orlando Early clammed up. 
He didn't cooperate. He wasn't called as a witness in the criminal case. He refused to cooperate with the NCAA investigation. And so there really isn't a perfect evidentiary trail that shows that this money actually made it to Dennis Smith Jr. And then as the criminal cases ramped up, both Gasnola and Gatto are implicated. And Gatto fights the charges, but Gasnola turns state's evidence. And NC State's name comes up as Gasnola's talking about some transactions that involved other schools. And then the NC State scenario is brought into a new indictment. And it's also important to note that in the criminal cases, NC State is not the bad guy. The university itself is deemed the victim. And I've talked a lot about the victim university theory and the absurdity of it. But in the criminal case, none of the NC State actors, not Gottfried, the head coach, not Early, the assistant coach, or Dennis Smith uh, Jr., his family, or their handler, Sean Farmer, none of them are involved in the criminal case. They aren't called as witnesses and they aren't named as defendants. But Gasnola turns state evidence to avoid going to jail. He becomes the government's star witness and really the only witness whose testimony the NCAA and the hearing panel rely on in making its case it's against NC State on this most important transaction, this $40,000 transaction. So TJ Gasnola goes from a guy that even the worst of the worst don't want to deal with in the real world of college basketball, and now all of a sudden he's the star witness for the federal government and the hearing panel, the IARP hearing panel. They, per, they try to pump this guy up because he's their only source of evidence. And it's really cringeworthy listening to how they try to transform T.J. Gasnola into a person of credibility and honor and whose integrity and, and honesty is unimpeachable. So we can, we can take his testimony. So the prosecutions go forward. Again, I've talked a lot about that. Gatto, this Adidas representative who reimbursed Gasnola, didn't plead. And he went forward and he was actually an Adidas employee. And he, his role was actually kind of passive. So Gasnola is the one who actually moved the money and then Gatto reimbursed Gasnola. But Gatto gets charged under these flimsy conspiracy to commit wire fraud statutes. And he gets convicted. As I discussed in the last episode, he, he appeals it up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Then the NCAA steps in and they're starting their investigations. And this is an entirely different setting because in the criminal cases, NC State was the victim. And then all of a sudden in the administrative cases where the NCAA is coming in to swing that righteous hammer of amateurism and the integrity of college sports, all of a sudden NC State is the perpetrator. So this case goes through the system. NC State raises all kinds of issues, procedural issues and irregularities in addition to the substantive issues on the evidence. And there are two main objections, as I mentioned earlier, with it. The NCAA's use of importing information in from the criminal case, it doesn't make sense because NC State and none of the actors at NC State who are the subject of the NCAA investigation were either defendants or witnesses in the criminal case. So they didn't participate in that case. And uh, NC State says that the use of that, quote unquote, evidence from the criminal case through this importation provision is a violation of NC State's due process rights. And that's a pretty good argument. And then the other thing 
They said was when you moved this case from the old system to the new system, we lost our right of appeal because in the old system, you can appeal a decision of the Committee on Infractions, the in-house NCAA old committee that handles these cases. If you lose that case, you can appeal to an infractions appeals committee. When you get moved into the IARP or you start in the IARP, that decision's final. There's no right of appeal. And that is a huge due process issue. And as I discussed in my episodes on NC State, the NC State's lawyers, and they lawyered up on this thing because they were, I think, laying the foundation to sue the NCAA if uh, they got hammered here. And I'm going to talk about the timeline here in just a second, but the NCAA's view of the world when it was formulating its notice of allegations and its approach to this NC State case was fundamentally different. And this is in 2019 and 2020 than it is today because a hell of a lot has happened since the Committee on Infractions referred this case in May of 2020 to the IARP. Notably, the Austin decision, the NCAA's failed attempt in Congress to get absolute federal protections and immunities from its compensation limits, and the complete and embarrassing failure of the NCAA to take any meaningful action on name, image, and likeness, and they just waved the white flag. And that's why we are where we are. But they were operating from a position of strength, they believed, and they were in the process of trying to achieve one of the greatest regulatory power grabs in the history of American sports. And on the backside of the failure of that initiative across the board, the NCAA found itself in a position of weakness that it had never experienced. And that had Bob Gates, the head of this constitution committee, saying the NCAA is in a battle for relevance. And many, including me, questioned whether the NCAA should even exist if their sole purpose going forward was going to be to just collect March Madness money, distribute it to downstream beneficiaries to keep everybody happy, and then be the world's biggest party planner in putting on these national championships. If that's the case, why should they even exist? That's a very thin justification for being the beneficiary of over a billion dollars a year. So that's where the NCAA ultimately found itself, and it completely flipped the script in the infractions and enforcement process. And one of the th points that I made in my earlier episodes is that in looking at the, these cases that were going to be run through the IARP, the IARP was in a really interesting position because it was going to have to make its decisions in this entirely new environment. And I predicted, and I think I was accurate in this prediction, that they were, were going to have to really be careful about bringing the hammer down on NC State or any other school that is in the IARP system because of these basketball-related cases. And NC State made it clear that if they got hammered, they were going to turn around and sue the NCAA, and they had some very good arguments. So now let me just bottom line what this... IARP hearing panel did with this case and this evidence and then the penalties that it imposed on both NC State and then the individual actors, Mark Gottfried, the head coach, and then Orlando Early, the assistant coach. Ultimately, in the face of all those allegations, direct payments to players and the NCAA said it didn't matter whether the money ultimately made it to Smith Jr. Under the bylaw we're looking at it, the assistant coach only had to be involved in quote-unquote arranging the payment. And that is what the bylaw says. So it skirted the chain of custody issue on that. But the punishment that they meted out was very, very light. So 
for this high level, this was a level one violation. I talked about the penalty structure in the last episode, but level one uh, violations are the most egregious. Then you have level two and level three. And this was clearly a level one violation. You're talking about paying an athlete to induce him to attend or remain committed to a particular school. That is the ultimate crime against amateurism in the NCAA's construction of reality. And in that kind of case, historically, the NCAA would bring the hammer down, both on the institution and on the individuals involved. Here, it was a very, very light touch. So the hearing panel, after finding that this transaction was deemed to have occurred, and, and part of that was because Orlando Early, the assistant coach, didn't cooperate. So his lack of cooperation was used against him and NC State as essentially an admission that all of the allegations against him were in fact true. So the NCAA claims that they basically proved their case, or the hearing panel concludes that the NCAA basically proved its case on that $40,000 payment. But the punishment was just completely inconsistent with that finding because NC State got one year of probation. And the terms of the probation are that NC State loses one scholarship as a practical matter for one year, and that's the next season. They'll have one less scholarship, and the max uh, limit is 13 scholarships for men's basketball, so they can only give 12. I don't think that's consequential. Then they also uh, received some recruiting restrictions. So they had some minimal time reductions and parts of the recruiting season where they can't actively recruit. And again, that didn't look material to me at all. Very easy penalty there, very light penalty there. And then the financial penalty. So they were required to pay $5,000 as a penalty. And then this must be a typo. They say 0.5% of basketball budget. That would be 50%. I think it's supposed to be 0.05, which would be 5% of their basketball budget. And I went back and looked at the penalty structure. There's nothing that allows a penalty above 5%. So I think that might might have been a typo, but that's not much. I don't think that's a, a huge deterrent and it's not going to cause any meaningful angst in the athletics department. Then as to the individual, so you had two people involved. You had this assistant coach who was involved in the transaction and then clammed up. Then you had the head coach who's no longer at NC State. And I would call him a poor man's Bruce Pearl. You know, they're fishing in the same ponds, but Pearl just has this talent for walking away unscathed. Gottfried just gets in trouble everywhere he goes. He is now at uh, Cal Northridge, and he was in April just put on, on leave while they investigated another allegation here. Not a poster boy for integrity in college coaching. But so he got a one-year show cause order. So Gottfried only gets a one-year show cause order. And there wasn't solid evidence that would link him to having actual knowledge of this transaction. And again, when the assistant coaches clam up, that's a benefit to the, the head coaches. And again, there's a racial component there because all these assistant coaches are African-American. All the, most of the uh, head coaches are white. And it's one of those dynamics where these guys get thrown under the bus for the benefit of the institution and they're viewed as dispensable. And there's an obvious racial component to that line of demarcation between who's accountable and who's not. But there wasn't any evidence to tie Gottfried to the transaction. So he gets a one-year show cause order. Then Orlando Early, the assistant coach, he gets a six-year show cause order, which as a practical matter makes him unemployable. And I haven't 
try to track down what, if anything, Early is doing in basketball, but I, nobody's going to touch him. Just like nobody is going to touch uh, Chuck Person, I don't think. I don't think. So those were extraordinarily light penalties given the findings of this hearing panel and the way that they interpreted the evidence and then applied it to existing NCAA bylaws. They essentially found that NC State paid this kid $40,000 to attend NC State. You know, that, that's about as egregious as it gets in the world, according to the NCAA. And so again, I think that the timeline I'm going to talk about explains why the IARP treated this so delicately. And I predicted this back when I was doing my NC State episodes. I said the only intelligent response right now for the, for the IARP is to do whatever it has to do to symbolically say they stand behind NCAA principles, but then issue a punishment that doesn't put them in the crosshairs of a lawsuit. Because if they brought the hammer down on NC State, if they had issued a postseason ban or some other combination of penalties that are more severe and may carry further into the future, I think the NCAA is looking at a lawsuit. So I think the way this was handled and the way the punishment was structured, they avoided really the two most important due process issues. One, in the way that they framed the analysis, they really skirted this whole importation issue and relied on an, an entirely independent bylaw as the basis of their decision. In fact, that bylaw is called basis of decision. It was a cop-out and they tried to skirt the whole importation issue because that was a legal quagmire, a due process nightmare for them. And then they, I think with the light penalties, they avoided the incentive for NC State to want to appeal. So if NC State's not inclined to rock the boat here and they aren't saying they got screwed, then the denial of a of, of right of appeal isn't an issue as a practical matter. So the ARP here has effectively, I think, taken off the table the, their two biggest vulnerabilities in a lawsuit challenging the process on due process grounds. I, I do think they throw a bone to the NCAA and to Carol Cartwright by trying to portray some of the comments by one by Mark Gottfried's attorney and then one by the NC State Chancellor, Randy Woodson, who I'm going to talk more about here because he's an important player in all this. But they tried to suggest that there was some uh, adversarial posturing, which they don't really call it adversarial posturing. But I don't see any other reason why they would have included those two statements in the fact pattern. They don't explain why they're relevant. But when Carol Cartwright issued her February 14th, 2021 referral memo, sending the case from the old infractions and enforcement process and the Committee on Infractions to this new independent accountability resolution process. She cited the comment of Gottfried's attorney. She didn't cite Woodson's statement, but she used the public comments to portray NC State as taking a public stance against the NCAA. And that's a no-no in the NCAA's infractions and enforcement world. Only the NCAA gets to make public comments that try to uh, manipulate public opinion. And the hearing panel didn't address those comments. So it was a really interesting way that they brought that in. But I, I think that may have been just some way to try to legitimize Carol Cartwright's otherwise indefensible referral memo. But I think that's a bone to make it appear as if what Carol Cartwright did was defensible. And it's not. 
if the NCAA had gotten sued here, and I don't think they're going to be sued, but if they had been sued, that Carol Cartwright referral memo and the way that she handled these cases would be exhibit A in that lawsuit. It's not going to be good for the NCAA. So let me just talk about how much things have changed just since this case was heard by this IARP panel. And that was on August 9th and 10th of 2021, so just a few months ago. But I need to walk through the timeline of how that fits into this Constitution Committee and then the important actors now at the decision-making table in looking at what the future of college sports is going to look like and, more importantly, for the purposes of this NC State case, what infractions and enforcement is going to look like. So remember that it was July 30th. And this is on the backside of the nil debacle and the failure in Austin, a unanimous Supreme Court ruling that was really a body blow to the NCAA's basic value system, their failure in Congress to get these extraordinary federal protections and immunities, all that. It was recently in the rearview mirror, and the NCAA was reeling, and they're trying to figure out where to go. Bob Gates, on July 30th, he does an announcement that says, look, we're going to form this Constitution Committee. And his initial rhetoric was framed around the NCAAs trying to retain relevance. And he was talking about aligning responsibilities and, and authorities. And it was then that I really started thinking about this NC State case and the infractions and enforcement process, because ultimately this entire shooting match at the regulatory level boils down to what principles, what values the regulator is going to enforce. And that has been an issue that a recurring problem for the NCAA over the years. And it, it seems to only care about enforcing two types of rules. One that go to limiting the cost of labor, fixing the price of labor at the value of an athletic scholarship through amateurism-based compensation limits. And then the other is trying to manage this ridiculous talent acquisition market and the competitive advantage-disadvantage equation that operates in that market. And so you have all these crazy recruiting rules, amateurism-based recruiting rules. But on their broad principles, all these fluffy constitutional principles, they have no legislation that gives them the basis for enforcing any of those principles. And as I've said earlier with this new constitution, and the Constitution Committee and the Transformation Committee at the Division One level, I don't think that's going to change. They don't want those responsibilities. And they've gone to, I think, great lengths in the drafting process to eliminate any language that would impose any enforceable mandates for those constitutional provisions and those lofty goals and principles. So you had Gates announcing this Constitution Committee. Then something happens on August 4th, just five days later that got virtually no coverage. And I did an episode that focused on this. And this was when I really got my radar up, that something was going on behind the scenes that wasn't apparent to the general public. And I wasn't quite sure what it was. And now that things have played out, I think I have a pretty good idea of what it was. So out of nowhere, and again, this is just a week before the hearing in this NC State case, the uh, NCAA gets one of these propaganda press releases out, and it's dated August 4th, 2021. The title of it is Division One Board Adopts APR Changes for Transfers, and that's an academic standard that they have a kind of a Mickey Mouse standard to try to make it look like everybody's graduating, everybody's making progress, everybody's a winner in the classroom. Looking at that headline, you wouldn't immediately think that there's anything else of consequence there. And it's not a sexy issue, right? But then there's a subsection titled 
independent accountability resolution process. So at this Division I Board of Directors meeting, the Division I Board of Directors did a really strange thing. And it didn't make sense to me at the time. It just it was a red flag. But they said, the board also approved an immediate change to the independent accountability resolution process made at the recommendation of the Independent Accountability Oversight Committee. And that oversight committee has a majority of NCAA insiders on it. I've talked about that as well. Then it goes on to say, the complex case unit will accept the investigative work of the enforcement staff unless the unit can demonstrate a compelling reason why additional investigation is required. And then they say, the Oversight Committee, which has expressed concerns about the delay in the resolution of cases referred to the independent process, determined that much of the delay is the result of efforts by the complex case unit to quote-unquote reinvestigate cases that the enforcement staff thoroughly investigated. Accepting the enforcement staff's results will speed the process significantly without compromising the goals of the independent resolution process committee members think. The changes are effective Immediately, if, if you've been paying attention to what's going on with this infractions and enforcement process, that's a big wow, because the entire purpose of the complex case unit was to act as an alternative to the in-system enforcement and infractions investigative work, which was fraught with conflicts of interest. That was the very reasoning of the Commission on College Basketball. So now... Not only is the enforcement and infractions work still being considered, they've basically neutered this entire complex case unit, effective immediately. And you have to wonder what the sense of urgency was. And it's not entirely clear. At the same time, there was also an interesting public comment from Greg Sankey. And this was an ESPN article. There, again, there was very little coverage surrounding this. And I was looking for some context, somebody who might have some inside information on what's going on here. And it really wasn't out there. But in this really brief ESPN article, they're talking to Greg Sankey. And I'm like, why are they talking to Greg Sankey? Greg Sankey is not on the Division One Board of Directors or the NCAA Board of Governors. He doesn't have any official role in the NCAA governance process. He's the commissioner of the SEC, but also one of the most powerful men in college sports as this summer of 2021 played out. Actually, going back to 2019, when the NCAA and Power Five started their congressional campaign in the Senate, Sankey's been the lead dog. And he is the most, I would say, the most influential man in college sports right now. But why would they get a comment from Sankey on this IARP issue? And Sankey came out and said, look, this process has taken too long. It's inefficient. And we just want to get things done. And he also said that he didn't think that these basketball-related cases were really high-stakes cases when the very purpose of the IARP uh, through the work of the Commission on College Basketball, was to create a separate track for these very cases. It just didn't make any sense. And he said, look, we can run this through the old system. And that suggested to me that he just wants to do away with this whole IARP. But that was one of those little flags that I bookmarked because it just was an outlier comment. It just didn't seem to fit to what was happening here. And there was something going on behind the scenes that wasn't apparent. So then... You have the actual hearing in the NC State case through the IARP resolution panel on August 9th and August 10th. What happens on August 10th? Robert Gates announces the roster for the Constitution Committee. And then 
things uh, just quiet down on the NC State front. They've had the hearing, and now it's uh, in the lap of the panel to issue a decision. And we have no indication of, of when that might happen. And again, this is the very first case ever to run through this process. So this is going to be the very first case from this panel. We're kind of bookmarking that too, what's going to happen here. And then this whole Constitution Committee starts to take on a life of its own. And then you have some comments from Gates. You have the hyper-propagandizing by the NCAA and its minions in the media, and then this social series podcast. And they're really putting on the full court press to get buy-in to this constitutional makeover. And again, I've talked a lot about that in prior episodes, and this is nothing more than a power play by the Power Five, and they've been very skilled and successful in pulling it off. But then we're coming into October, and we still don't have any, any work product from the Constitution Committee. So it's October 2021, and the committee's been meeting, and they had the survey, and they're doing their propaganda. But obviously, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that isn't visible to the public. And there's some power playing going on and some jockeying. But there's no suggestion at this point that Greg Sankey is involved in any of that because he has no formal role. And, and I need to say this too. Randy Woodson, who is the chancellor of NC State, he is not just some... Uh, university president or chancellor. He is a very powerful person in, in college sports. At the time of this NC State investigation by the NCAA, Randy Woodson was sitting on the NCAA Board of Governors and the NCAA Division I Board of Directors. So he's getting screwed by the NCAA, but he's sitting on both of those boards. He's a powerful person. But I didn't talk much about this in my episodes on NC State, but that was another thing I was bookmarking. And so Woodson, he's kind of like Linda Livingstone and a lot of some of these other university presidents and chancellors who are sitting on both of these powerful boards at the same time. And they wield enormous influence. This very small group of people wield enormous influence. But Woodson's kind of off the radar screen, and he was not named to the Constitution Committee. Neither was Greg Sankey. So when this Constitution Committee comes out, it's all NCAA insiders. And I think there were seven or eight members of the NCAA Board of Governors. But Randy Woodson wasn't on that list. Greg Sankey wasn't on that list. And so I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, I don't know where this Constitution Committee is going. Then in late October, on October 27th, the Division I Board of Directors announces the formation of this transformation committee. And again, as of October 27th, 2021, we still don't have any work product from the Constitution Committee. We have no idea what they have in mind. We have no idea what their uh, agenda is and what even the talking points are for changes in the Constitution. And Gates has been very coy in his public comments, and so has the NCAA. We really don't know where this is going. We get these broad, fluffy principles, but there's no suggestion that there is a specific reform platform that's operating w within the confines of this Constitution Committee. So October 27th, the Division I Board of Directors announces this transformation committee, and they say that this is really this committee designed to facilitate any changes in Division I that will be the product of any new constitution. But they also say, and this was really interesting to me, that even if the constitution is not ratified, they still want to make some changes in Division I. That was a red flag, and I'm bookmarking that too. So I'm, in, I'm getting more and more curious about what's really going on here. And then I look at the transformation committee list, and it is fascinating. Guess who is on the Division I transformation committee? Randy Woodson and Greg Sankey. But again, 
this is October 27th, and we don't know what the Constitution Committee is looking at, but all of a sudden, things change a little bit. I, I saw that, and I thought, this is interesting, but this Division I Transformation Committee that is clearly driven by Power Five interests is being run by Greg Sankey. He's a co-chair. And then Randy Woodson is one of the 21 members and one of a much smaller group of university presidents. And as I discussed in my episode on that transformation committee and its composition, it is a majority power five. This is a power five show. It's a power five takeover. So that's late October. Then next in the timeline is November 8th of 2021. And that's when the constitution committee releases its first draft constitution. And when I read that draft and I saw that one of the centerpiece elements of it was this change and shift in power with respect to infractions and enforcement from the NCAA national office to the divisions, and more particularly Division One, I, I thought, oh, there you go. it's all coming together now. So infractions and enforcement has been one of the most important components of this whole makeover. And it's important to remember that going back to the autonomy movement in 2013, 2014, when the Power Five got complete separation from the rest of the NCAA and became a formal sub-cartel under the NCAA umbrella, one of the things they were seeking but didn't get at that time was their own infractions and enforcement process because they thought the stakes were too high for the Power Five schools and they didn't want to be subject to the NCAA's arbitrary, capricious, and asymmetrical approach to infractions and enforcement. Now, with this new constitution, they have that opportunity. When you look at the composition of the Transformation Committee, the fact that it's controlled by Power Five interests, that Sankey is in the driver's seat, he's expressed open hostility to the IARP and to the old committee on infractions. And I think he's a driving force behind this shift to uh, the divisional model and the Power Five taking over infractions and enforcement. You start to see this through a much different lens. Then you see Randy Woodson on that transformation committee, now with infractions and enforcement on the table because of the, the substance of this new draft. And you say, uh-oh, if you're the IARP, you got to be careful. you got to be real careful about how you handle this now because Randy Woodson and Greg Sankey can control whether you exist under the new model, the new divisional infractions and enforcement model. So I think in addition to trying to avoid a lawsuit by NC State, the IARP is in a fight for its relevance. And having the college athletics infractions and enforcement business is pretty good. I mean, th these companies that are in the complex case unit and are acting as advocates and the individuals acting as hearing panelists, they're getting paid good money. Again, and I don't know whether the cost of that system is uh, a factor in Sankey's opposition to it, but if you're in that business and you are marketing yourself as an alternative dispute resolution person or an investigative company, and it's a niche market, you want that business. That's a nice client to have. So the IARP is now essentially auditioning for the Power Five. That's how I see it. With this change and you look at this timeline and you look at how infractions and enforcement is a centerpiece in many ways of this new constitutional makeover and you look at who is now calling the shots you're pitching your business to the power five and i think that explains the soft touch by the committee on infractions in the auburn case and i think it explains the very soft touch of the iarp in this nc state case and in this new constitution there are some guiding principles that are part of the makeover of infractions and enforcement. And 
they are really equity-based. And one is that you don't punish athletes who had absolutely nothing to do with the conduct at issue. And of course, that happened in the Oklahoma State case, which was issued in 2020, well before the NCAA was in a fight for its relevance. The other thing that the new constitution aspires to in the infractions and enforcement process is efficiency and proportionality. And the message there is that the old system simply wasn't fair. And yesterday when this opinion came out, there was a comment from the chair of the panel addressing why no postseason ban was issued as a penalty. And she said, look, we don't want to punish athletes who had nothing to do with the conduct at issue. And I interpreted that as a direct message to the decision makers in this transformation committee that the IARP has gotten the message and they're going to play ball with this new philosophy as expressed in the new draft constitution. And again, you also have the introduction of this NCAA Accountability Act, and that came, I think, on November 2nd. So in this timeline, I should, probably should have mentioned this earlier, but in this timeline, you have this bill introduced by a House member from Tennessee, co-sponsored by House members from California and Utah. And it's a bipartisan bill that basically brings the hammer down on the NCAA infractions and enforcement process and would essentially put the infractions and enforcement process into federal receivership under the supervision of the Department of Justice. And I don't think that the timing of that bill, the introduction of that bill, was coincidental, and all three co-sponsors are from Power Five states. And these head-scratching decisions, the Auburn case through the Committee on Infractions and the NC State case through the IARP, also helps explain the timing of those decisions, because both the NCAA National Office Infractions and Enforcement staff and the IARP now have an incentive to be on the record with a kinder, gent gentler approach to infractions and enforcement. If you're looking at it just through the lens of infractions and enforcement, these two, what may be now competing interests, the NCAA National Office staff and then this IARP, I think they're pitching their business to the Power Five. And it'll be real interesting to see after this new constitution is ratified on January 7th, and I don't think there's any question that's going to happen. But when that happens, I think we're going to start to see how the Transformation Committee, which means Greg Sankey and the most important people on that committee, Jerry Moorhead, president of Georgia, Linda Livingstone, president of Baylor, Randy Woodson, chancellor at NC State, and then these conference commissioners and the high-powered athletics directors, how are they looking at infractions and enforcement? And we don't know if there are any more basketball-related cases that might be running through the old Committee on Infractions, because we're not supposed to know about these cases, honestly. You know? So we, the fact that we know this much means that there's a sieve in this whole process in terms of information. But we have at least four really important cases now that the IARP still has, including Arizona, LSU, and Kansas. And you've got these imperial coaches, white imperial coaches. And what are they going to do? And so far, the template's been pretty consistent. And in the racial dynamic of all this, what the IARP did with NC State's really not that much different than what the NCAA's Committee on Infractions did with Auburn and in many, many other cases. 
And that is that the black assistant coaches get thrown under the bus, the black athletes get thrown under the bus, and the white coaches skate. I mean, that's just part of the business model now, essentially. And I talked about in the context of these white coaches being made men. So what are they going to do with Bill Self? Are they going to they're going to bring the hammer down on Kansas? I don't think so. As the Transformation Committee is putting some flesh on the bones of how they view infractions and enforcement, I think you may see some of these other cases being resolved, and I think they're going to be in some ways responsive to what's happening in the Transformation Committee. And you can say, oh, that's really cynical. Are they really thinking about it that way? Of course they are, because they're in it to make money. They are in the business of doing the work that they're doing now for the NCAA in the, in the IARP process. And they want to keep their business, just like the NCAA National Office wants to keep the gravy train rolling. So it's going to be real interesting to see how all that plays out. But Randy Woodson goes from this really behind-the-scenes guy who actually had extraordinary power being on both the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors. Now he, I would say, is one of the five or six most powerful people in all of college sports. And he is the chancellor of North Carolina State University. And, you know, this infractions and enforcement process that was all full of high horse and bravado and arrogance back in 2019, 2020 and into early 2021 is now in a much, much different position. I mean, they just went from sitting on the iron throne of college sports regulation to now being on their knees, uh, begging the very people they were trying to persecute to save their jobs. I mean, I just, the irony of that is just beautiful to me. So we'll see what happens. We'll keep a a sharp eye on this. And uh, I'm not sure what my next episode is going to look like. It seems like every time I say I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, I wind up doing A, B, or C. So I'm going to keep you guessing. In any event, thanks so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 